Bible Q&A, a monthly discussion with Luther Seminary faculty about everything you wanted to know about the Bible but were afraid to ask. I'm Cameron Howard. And I'm Eric Bretto. And joining us today is Professor Matt Skinner, uh, who teaches New Testament here at Luther Seminary, and he's going to share with us uh, one of his favorite Bible passages. Welcome, Matt. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Matt. So we're doing this series where we're asking our colleagues here what their favorite Bible passages are, and you take us, Matt, to the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. I often t- tell my students that it's, I felt like these two chapters all of a sudden you jump into uh, a Broadway musical or an episode of Glee where people are singing all of a sudden. Why land here? What is it about these first two chapters that stick with you so so much? Yeah, it's something about the artistry of these chapters. I think they're beautiful. I think they're obscure, otherwise forgettable people who mm. suddenly realize that they're at the center of some world-altering events. Yeah. There's a kind of, not nostalgia, but there's certainly a sense in which these passages, I think, transport us to a really distant place. I mean, the, the whole Bible does as well, but this transports us really back into um, ancient Israelite history, I think. And so there's a sense of, oh yeah, this is the story we're talking about. And so right away you glimpse, differently because we're reading, but you, you can tell when you start a movie from the music or from what people are wearing, kind of about what period it's set ah, in. Yeah. And this is a place yeah. that, yeah, it's set in the Roman Empire, but some of these people look like people we've been reading about for a long time in the Old Testament, the way they talk and the kind of hope that they have. Yeah, this, it's adorned or kind of framed by references to the Roman Empire, right? So it talks about – it sets these um, these stories of these really ordinary people and kind of living these seemingly ordinary lives, but framing them around these big world events. And then also then I think you're saying then framing them around these longer and older stories that we see in the Hebrew scriptures as well. And that framing in and of itself harkens back to the Old Testament. So um, at the very beginning of Genesis, we see God creating the world and then very quickly the scope of or the focus of those stories narrows to this one family, the family Mm -hmm. of Abraham, and what happens with that family and what is promised to that family then impacts not only the history of Israel, but then, of course, um, through Israel, the world is blessed. And Mary realizes that, especially Mary, Zechariah as well, I mean, all of them, but recognizes that what's happening to her matters for her. And so her, her poem, her song begins with how important this is for her. My soul magnifies the Lord, what, what, what the Lord has done for me. But then starts to use this as an occasion now to talk about who God is and how God works on this national and international scale. And that's that teaches me, well, on the one hand, these passages teach me how to read Luke and Acts right. in terms right. of how to situate it theologically. But it also tells me how to worship, like I mentioned in the in the essay. But it, we call it an essay, the article. The post, the, the really engaging piece I wrote that online. Thi- that thing you write online. Yeah, yeah yes. I realized essay is going to scare people off because who <laughs> wants to read an essay? But uh, it, it also instructs me to think about not just my relationship with God as some weird, private, isolated affair, but as always part of a bigger movement on who God is on behalf of the world. And, and that's important. And I, I learned that just songs that people yeah. start singing. I'm always struck that, too, that there's a boldness in who she is and what she says as well. So the words themselves are these promises of a world turned upside down, of these radical reversals that people have often talked about. But then also to imagine what it is for a very young woman to be the one saying these things in this context. Um, It's not Zechariah, the priest, who gets his first word. It's Mary, uh, kind of somebody who might otherwise be overlooked as somebody who might have this prophetic word to speak. 
And, of course, um, very directly echoes the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. So, again, there's that Old Testament resonance um, and yet a new thing continuing to be said. And Miriam's song, too, in the... In Exodus sure. as well, there's these, yeah, it's this, it's and it's this powerful interweaving of all these stories together. It's just not just one reference in these texts. Yeah, we get this sense of don't I know this story? Haven't yeah. I seen this before? These are familiar themes. These are familiar statements. And so there's an oldness. There's a continuity. There's also a newness that's, that's breaking in here. That's really important. And so, I mean, I think we get distracted when we look at Mary and we say, how would she know how to right. quote all this scripture yeah, right. or something like that? Which is missing the point. She just knows that when remarkable things happen like this, mm-hmm. you talk about God and you locate yourself in God's bigger purposes. And so her 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 song, that Magnificat there in Luke 1, is it's, it's fun to look at and think, like, what is she talking about exactly? Mm-hmm. Like, which mm-hmm. acts of God does she have in mind? Uh-huh. Which, again, isn't the point. I think what she's doing is offering a character sketch. This is the kind of stuff God does uh, in terms of throwing down the mighty, raising up the lowly. You know, it's not like there's a discrete historical event she might have in mind. There maybe are several, or maybe it's just all hope. But she's giving a sketch to, this is the God we've been worshiping for a long time here in this place and among my people, and now that God is doing something new again. Right, right. And, too, the way she speaks, right? So we were talking before we started, especially Cameron, about how much poetry you find in these first two chapters. Right, and we've talked on this podcast several times about um, the way that poetry, I believe it was Fred Geyser who says, sometimes only poetry will do. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. is, the expansiveness of poetry, um, the way that it can bring in metaphors and images and shows rather than tells um, in many ways, helps Mary, helps um, any of us, helps the prophets in general, uh, be able to describe this new thing that we have so much trouble imagining and sort of describing in prose and sort of narrative, this happened and then this happened, but rather opens up our imaginations. It does, and I think, I think it's especially helpful when you think about this as being at the beginning of a story, the beginning yeah. of a long story, and how this, these first two chapters set expectations or how we're supposed to encounter the rest of the Gospel of Luke and even the book of Acts. And different interpreters have done different things with that. But it, it makes you want to read on. Or it, makes you, it, right. it draws me in to this bigger, this bigger narrative and then makes me wrestle with, oh, how come it didn't end the way I thought it was going to end? And what's, what's going on with that? Um, I, I think I stole this line from somebody because I've been using it so long. I've probably forgotten where I first heard it. And now it's yours. But I, put it, <laughs> I guess so. But it's, it's there on the blog as well that... It's as if Luke is saying that Jesus comes to a world that's expecting him, that Mm -hmm. can't wait for him to arrive and is ready to welcome him. Uh, And so we want to wonder in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, what happened to that world? Mm -hmm, (laughs) Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, it seems like this is a dream that's forgotten. Nobody seems to remember this at all. And there's there's confusion about him and there's opposition that rises. And for me, that that reflects my own faith journey in so many ways. I want to be like these people in Luke 1 and 2. Most of the time, though, I'm utterly confused like Mm -hmm. the people in... Luke 3 to 24. Yeah, and then going on to the Acts of the Apostles, too, that there's, yeah, there's this promise that even as Paul is sitting there in prison at the end of the book of Acts, that promise is still ringing, and we're still waiting for it. We experience it, and we don't at the same time. And sometimes I think I can recognize it in my own life. Most of the time I have to remind myself, I have to go back, okay, is this still, are we still on this narrative trajectory? Is this still the story being told that Zechariah and Simeon and Anna and Mary all recognize? And so... It's, it's helpful for me to at least kind of orient my own vision, my own life that way. So we're talking about this text as if it is this super world-changing text, but frankly, um, it's so familiar to me from Christmas <laughs> that um, 
I tend to forget or not notice how sort of profound it is because uh, when it comes to New Testament passages, you know, the New Testament birth story is one of the few that I can recite. Mm. Um, I can, the Old Testament, of course, I've got covered. Right, right, but right, right. <laughs> when it comes to the New Testament, um, this is one of the things that we turn to again and again. So uh, how do we keep remembering the power of it year yeah. after year, reading after reading? Do you hear it in Linus's voice from the Charlie Brown Christmas <laughs> show? When no. you hear Luke 2 being read? I do. I always I hear Linus. Well, I think, you know, I, I think it's good to encounter texts like this outside of their season because I think Christmas, it, it helps us, again, sit, get situated in Christmas. It also distorts it. I think we should read the Passion narratives at times besides Holy Week, and, and we'll notice different things. And so here, this is a text that helps us think about, again, what does it mean to talk about promise or what kinds of things are promised around the coming of Jesus? Um, that fits any any season. This is not so much about getting us ready for Jesus to be born as much as it is to think about what are your expectations for who God is and how God has pledged to operate in our midst. Yeah, I wonder if, if our user on Christmas suggests that these are stories primarily about Jesus' birth that we can then move on from. I think for Luke, it's it's like the way it's like this framing narrative that tells you what how to read the rest of the text. It's a way to uh, to shape one's narrative imagination as you move forward into this text, so that Mary's song kind of used that image it just keeps resonating, it keeps echoing throughout those pages. It's this constant reminder of where we started and where it is that we're going. So I think maybe dislodging it from that, uh, from the holiday season might help us do some of that work as well. Uh, maybe even, too, like you talk about in, in one of these first points at the end, is to talk about what salvation looks like for Luke. So what does salvation look like in these first couple of chapters? That there's, um, I mean, I grew up in a tradition where salvation was basically limited to what happened when you stopped breathing. But what if salvation is not just um, God saving you from the grips of death, but also then God interceding in our world right here and right now in a way that looks really radical, that it turns the world upside down. Well, I need more than Luke 1 to 2 to answer that question. I mean, I think I need all the Gospel of Luke and even the Book of Acts, but I would say that, which are written by the same author, we believe, well, I'm sure of it, Um, (laughs) that uh, salvation is always corporate. Salvation is about belonging. Um, for this, that it involves, or at least it's, it's, it's embodied or it's expressed through the belonging in a community. It involves the keeping of God's promises to, to protect, provide, make secure. And so you have language of the preservation of the nation of Israel that gets carried over into Luke and Acts. Not so much to talk about a new nation, but really a new society that now embodies those promises of a God who will protect and provide for uh, all the, the great you know, promises of peace or shalom in the Old Testament, I think get at least kind of configured here. That includes things like forgiveness right. and a new start, but mostly it means now to belong uh, to something and to be um, to be part of God's action on behalf of the whole world to set things right. Mm-hmm. And that belonging doesn't come simply in the sort of we all stay the way that we are and get along now. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. We tend to sometimes get anxious, I think, about the Old Testament because we feel like, you know, maybe there's uh, God's playing favorites and, you know, things don't always turn out well for everybody <laughs> in the Old Testament. Um, but we get this in the New Testament, too, that, right, that salvation for all doesn't look like 
the status quo, but just everybody's at peace. It means justice. It means overturning oppressive systems, and people who benefit from those oppressive systems are put down, and those who have been subjugated by them are lifted up. So that that's part of that that radical message, and um, yeah, it also shows that the New Testament can get kind of you know. Judgy. Yeah, judgy. <laughs> well, there's people who are very concerned about power in all of these, yeah. in all of the songs, uh, and, and those who wield it. And so there's a way in which I think the empire is put on notice here. Mm-hmm. I think you definitely see it subtly in Luke 2 with the, the registry, you know, the, the census that's being taken. If I could jump into Luke chapter 3 as well, you've got the names of all of the, the rulers of the empire. Right. Uh, and then the word of the Lord comes to John, you know, yep. sweet little crazy John out in the wilderness. In all of his obscurity. Uh, and then Mary's song is dangerous. I have heard that in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, in one Central American country, it was churches were not allowed to recite the Magnificat. It, wow. I want to say it was it was Nicaragua, but I'm, I'm not. Use the internet. I don't remember the country the internet, either, folks. Yeah. Have yeah, you heard this before? Somebody Google this, yeah. And I don't know if this was just a regional thing or what, but apparently people were realizing this is, this is dangerous talk for powerless people to start to um, recite some of these things. Yeah. And so that... Um, I, I'm going to hold that with a, a loose hand because I don't remember the exact reference. But but I wonder if there's something there by kind of reawakening these chapters that you have to kind of listen to it again, not as just a choir singing this song, but this individual woman in the, in the first century singing this song of revolution. And maybe there's imagery around that, that not the placidness of Christmas so much, but like the, the, the fervor of, of a protest embedded in that song. Oh, I think so. And, and Mary, we know very little about her. She's probably poor and powerless. Even Zechariah and Elizabeth perhaps are too. Not all priests are necessarily wealthy. So it's these are really hidden people from the view of, of, of the, those in power, those who, who change the world. And so think about what that means, I think, is important for us. Uh, I mean, the three of us um, look more like the people on the thrones than mm-hmm. we do the underclass in Mary's song. And so what does that, that look like? I always chuckle when we sing the, the, the Canticle of the Turning yeah. which is based on the Magnificat because yeah. yeah. it's such a happy song. Yes. Talking about the, let the fire of your justice burn, you know, as if right. this is going to be really great news turn. for us. Because, yeah. uh, you know, it's got kind of this Irish jig kind of yeah. sense yeah. to it. I'm like, this is really a terrifying song when you think about what's yeah. being promised here. But it, it makes us reevaluate. Like I said in the, in the piece, it makes us see differently. So I have to now think about, okay, where am I in God's scheme of things? And where am I judged by this? And where am I also lifted up by this? Yeah, and I think it is good news ultimately for those of us who do benefit from systems of oppression because it is so difficult, if not impossible, to extricate ourselves from them of our own accord. I mean, just to, you know, to figure out how to be sure that no one suffered to make your clothes or to grow your food. or So we do uh, benefit from these. So I think there is hope and freedom for everybody. It just doesn't uh, look like the comfortable freedom that we might design for ourselves right anything else y'all want to say well read these passages you know read luke one and two and um and try to get a sense of again the period tenor and the feel of all of this um again these aren't songs being sung in a big cathedral these are in little huts these marys and perhaps Zechariah's as well you know Simeon's a shorter he's actually in the temple but he's not he's not running the place when when Simeon (laughs) yeah when Simeon and Anna are take up the baby Jesus into their arms or when Anna talks about the redemption of Jerusalem they're not at a pulpit announcing this to everybody they're in some little corner of a very large public space 
um, trying to say, look, this is the baby. This is the, you know, and people probably think they're crazy too. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's a way in which this is a story that's going to begin in obscurity, quite a bit of obscurity. It's going to get forgotten when we get to Luke chapter three, when Jesus is an adult. Uh, but it's going to continue on now for what, whatever 24 chapters of Luke plus 28 chapters of Acts equals 50 right. something. That seems about right. Don't yeah. ask me to do math. All right. 50, <laughs> so, it's so 52. Read but, these chapters and read them out of liturgical order, out of season, right? To see new things. Absolutely. Nice. nice. Thanks for this, Matt. This is super helpful. Thank you for joining us on Bible Q&A. You can find more information at enterthebible.org. Join us again.